You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is part two of my conversations with Todd Corpy. Todd Corpy, if you remember, is the pastor of the cathedral in Flint, Michigan, and he is also the author of his new book, The Life-Giving Spirit, about his experience in Flint, Michigan um, during the whole water crisis. Um, He talks about that. We get into that actually a lot in this episode. We also talk about some of his thoughts on missions and evangelism in a pluralistic America and a pluralistic modern world. Um, We also talk about, well, we talk about a lot of things. We get into the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement and a bunch of really interesting topics that I think you guys will enjoy. Um, I really enjoy talking to him, and I'm probably going to have him on again in the future to continue these chats. Um, So if you're enjoying this podcast as much as I am, you can support us uh, by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Uh, It only takes a couple minutes. Give us a couple stars five stars only five stars and review us it really helps us out you can also give your feedback at the bottom of the episode pages on the website pragmaticchristian.com and you can follow us on twitter pragmatic at pragmatic christ and you can give your feedback feedback on twitter as well um i really want to hear from you guys i want to you know know how to improve the show what you guys are enjoying what you're not enjoying uh i just want to get feedback um i like to consider these Um, as conversations, as dialogues, and I would really like to create dialogue um, among the listeners. So I'd really love to hear from you guys, talk about, you know, these subjects and all that jazz. So um, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Todd Corpy. So I am talking to Todd Corpy once again. He was on the podcast before. Uh, We talked about his book on mission, uh, the missional spirit, right? The life-giving spirit. The life-giving spirit, yep. sorry. But it was about missions and um, kind of, you know, talking about missions within the context of, you know, our crazy world today. Um, and so I wanted to have Todd Corby back on the podcast to discuss um, that concept of mission, the concept of Missio Day, and how we think about that in a pluralistic, democratic world, a world that many believe to be a secular age, you know, Christianity has lost in large part the culture wars, at least some believe so. I guess there's many who um, are still fighting that battle and don't <laughs> and uh, are either in denial or really think that you know Christianity is gaining ground in some aspects and we can talk about all that. but I want to have Todd to come back on to you know talk more about uh, missions and specifically in our culture. So I guess we should begin with you know how do we get all of our pastors um, brand new jets? so that they can travel the world. I think that that's going to be a pressing, a pressing issue in this conversation. And I guess we can just kind of go from there. So what do you think about those flying jets? Dude, I can't handle a printer on my own. (laughs) The last thing that I want is a jet license to me. Um, Maybe there are others that feel that way. Yeah. That whole thing, like, you know, kudos to Jesse Duplantis, like for, um, something but like something. Uh, um it, that's just crazy like the the whole idea I, I don't can't remember if it was him or somebody else made a comment about like 
like some alluding to like airports being like places where demons live or whatever. Now yeah. I believe that they're all wearing <laughs> TSA uniforms. <laughs> that, that's a joke. We should probably edit that part out. But uh, <laughs> uh, but the fact is, is like, man, proximity creates opportunity, you know. And I don't. I one you know preacher I respect a ton is Pastor Chris Hodges at Church of the Highlands, and he's constantly telling stories. He travels, you know, different conferences and churches and stuff like that. And he's constantly telling stories about encounters he has with people just sitting next to him, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, you miss those opportunities when, you know, the, the idea that Jesus would have flown on a private jet if he, if that, if he were alive today is ludicrous because Jesus, <laughs> w- Jesus would have rode coach yeah. with, you know, the mom trying to wrangle three kids on the flight from Detroit to LAX or whatever, you know, like that's yeah. that's that's Jesus. Like that's the yeah. Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of proximity. You know, and it's unlikely that he ever even left a you know forty mile radius <laughs> of his area. True. True. Yeah. I mean, the idea of a big flying steel box probably wasn't <laughs> on most first century I'm sure Jewish it was or Roman minds. Could have been. You know, <laughs> so, I'm sure there's I'm a sure. reference in like Isaiah or Jer- one some, of the somewhere in Revelation. I, I have heard. Uh, I don't remember what it was, but I remember somebody taking a, a Revelation um, proof text and using it, essentially saying it was a prophecy about forthcom- the forthcoming invention of helicopters. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Well, so that, well, if you ever watch, for anyone that watches Ancient Aliens, knows that you know there's references <laughs> <laughs> in the Old Testament prophets about UFOs and flying yeah. saucers and rings within rings, you know, which is obviously aliens. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. That's really good. So we're gonna figure out missions, and we're gonna you know do a GoFundMe for our own you know jets. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I think we'll end up talking about that because I about the proximity thing. Cause I think that that is a interesting, um, way to frame the conversation as far as when we think about missions, um, you know, is it better or worse or, you know, equally as valid or not equally as valid when it comes to going out to far lands or, you know, kind of reaching the world by gaining, geographical ground with each neighbor that we, you know, witness to or, you know, who comes to Christ and, you know, the kingdom kind of expands through, you know, our shoulder to shoulder interactions. Um, you know, that's certainly something that we could talk about, but I did want to go back to, um, you and your story. Um, our last conversation, we talked about your background and we mentioned that you live in Flint, but we didn't really talk too much about your experience as a pastor in Flint and your time there. Um, you said that you grew up in Flint, right? I did. Yeah. Just, uh, just outside the the city. Well, I, I grew up in a, a neighborhood we've commonly referred to as the state streets. Um, when I was at school age, my parents wanted to put me in a little bit better school. Cause like a lot of inner city schools, it's a challenge. So, right. um, moved out to the suburbs and, um, but grew up in the Flint area at a Flint mailing address. Yeah. My, my entire life until I went to college. Oh, really? That's when you yep. left? Yep. Yep. So, and then, uh, we were, we were in Springfield, Missouri. That's where I met my wife, uh, at central Bible college, uh, which is now part of Evangel university. Um, spent some time in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And then I came back here in 2014 and, uh, we've been here for, uh, just about four years, actually four years this Saturday that we closed on our house. Wow. I'm really bad with, um, dates and (laughs) any sense of time, but, um, how did you come before or after the whole Flint 
water crisis occurred? Well, it de- it depends on how how you date the water, like dating right. the water like, crisis. It became is a like, huge deal in the news. Yeah, when everyone really found out about it, we it started breaking. So uh, the mayor at the time. Um, uh, before everything happened was a guy named Dane Walling. Fantastic guy. Flint's first and only road scholar. Um, and actually one of my neighbors, um, just an incredible leader, but one at the, because of the state emergency management and I won't get into the politics of all that, but, um, that w- his hands were kind of tied and, yeah. but there was, there was starting to be some rumors that were circulating that the water wasn't safe to drink. We started getting boy water advisories and stuff like that in the mail right after we moved. So we moved October or August of 20 or 2014. Um, kind of were in between Kezu and Flint for a couple months and then finalized our move here in October. And I want to say it was that following, I don't remember exactly, but it, it was, it was sometime in 2015 that everything kind of hit the fan. Um, the Karen Weaver, who's the current mayor, uh, she was elected and um, you know, she's kind of a controversial figure in, in our city, but uh, for the most part is very, very well liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I think that she did very well was she kind of, I mean, she had no authority to call a state of emergency. There's no such thing as a municipal state of yeah. emergency, at least in, in the state of Michigan. And, but she did it anyway. Right. And it kind of blew the lid off the whole thing and drew awareness to it. Um, so we were actually, we had launched the church, but we were a very, very new church. Um, when stuff really started to ramp up and it was, it was the the heat of the media frenzy that was beginning in 2016. Um, but by that point, most Flintstones were very, you know, were well aware of it and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's kind of a multi-phased sort of situation, but, um, you know, we're, we're still dealing with, you know, the, it's kind of overblown in some respects. Like I, I see people on Twitter, like that have never been to Flint, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you know they'll you know tie in Trump to something like Flint, yeah. Michigan still has, doesn't have clean water. And I'm like my pipes got replaced last fall, bro. Like yeah. <laughs> you've never been here. Like I, See, will, I will, you think it's still being overblown? Like now, like after the fact? I think it's used as a political weapon. Yeah. Um, you know it can be. I think it's it, you know by both the left and the right, it's it's been politicized. Yeah. Um, the right used it during the the 2016 election to blame the left for failures. You know we had a Democratic mayor. Um, you know, so yeah. there's that whole thing, but then, you know, the left has kind of overplayed it as like a, a social justice issue. Um, but really hasn't paid attention to the fact that there's, you know, a significant progress that's been made. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, th- it, there are still struggles. Um, a lot of it is kind of the, the, uh, ripple effect. It's not lead tainted water, but it's, you know, it's perception, you know, yeah. it, it, like that has a lot to do with new businesses coming in and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, our roads are all torn up from, you know, the replacement work and stuff like that. Yeah. But the fact is, is like, uh, there's a lot of good happening in this city that, it, that was happening in the midst of the water crisis just was getting overblown because people, you know, preferred that negative story. But in each situation, same thing with the Flinttown documentary that Netflix did. Um, I was actually interviewed uh, by our our local uh, news, one of our local news affiliates. And I said, like, there's, you know, the complexity of human existence is a combination of both good and bad. It's both, you know, hardship and triumph. And, and we have to recognize both in it either to get an, to get an appreciation for what life is really like. So when someone's like, what's life in Flint? 
it's like, well, it's, you know, it's great and it's sucks and it's, you know, awesome and it's progress and it's setback and it's all that kind of stuff. And most cities experience that. Mm. I'm of the belief, you know, and I grew, I grew up here. Um, I'm of the belief that like we, we can, you know, it happened and that sucks. And I think that, you know, people should be held accountable for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, is like at some point we got to say we're stronger than this. We're not going to let this identify us. And we're going to move forward, you know, and, and mm-hmm. let, you know, the good things happening uh, identify us as a city. I sound like a politician when I say that, but I actually mean that. Like I'm not right. Yeah. For this. <laughs> well, it's, it, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, <laughs> Flint may not have been something that people really knew about, like just as a as a city, <laughs> um, you know, before all this happened, other than maybe, you know, some statistics about like crime or murder or whatever. But now it's like known for its water crisis. It's known for right. like this thing, like has the politics of it all. Is that something that's felt by the residents? Like, has it made things harder or easier or is it just something where the people that actually live there are like you guys are talking about all this stuff that like isn't affecting us or isn't like reality because it's all just like politics it's a difficult question to answer just because you know a a typical flintstone i mean i could i could draw you a typical flintstone but he or she is going to be very complex and and diverse you know what i mean like it's it's a very diverse city so there's a lot of different opinion I'll give you my opinion as as someone who pastored in this town for you know for a long time. Um, there's there's a deeply embedded negativity, um, almost almost an idolatry of, of negativity in this town. Like it's like that's the air we we breathe, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and and I think some of it's rooted in a desire for authenticity. People want real relationships. And they feel like something that is just positive because of a lot of genuine setbacks and a lot of hardships that have befallen the city over the years. Mm -hmm. People distrust positive news Mm. as, well, there's got to be that dark underbelly. There's got to be the the corruption. There's got to be this or that. So by Um, by, uh, negativity, you mean like a pessimism that's just kind of in the air? Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. There's uh, the Flint Journal. Just a couple hours ago, I read an article they posted about a a new – uh, strip mall coming in and all this kind of stuff. And like you click on it, you click on, you never click on the comments, but you click on no. the comments and like, it's just, well, the adult, they realize it's just going to be another nail salon or, Oh, it's just going to sit empty. And it's like, mm. but that's, that's like a hundred percent of the time, you know, yeah. and, and you, and you do that with, you know, you look at the comments on other local publications and usually you get, Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. More jobs in the area, you know, like not like, almost like a like a hatred of something like a positive step forward you know um and that mindset that negative mindset entraps us you know it's very attract it's very unattractive to outsiders Mm -hmm. um outside companies and stuff like that but it's also it's very self-defeating you know if i have that gnawing voice in my mind that constantly says i can't at some point i'm going to resign to that Mm -hmm. you know um and that's just that's just simple humanity that's not like a name it claim it sort of thing that's just you know the the voices that speak that we allow it to speak into our heart and into our mind end up shaping our our reality and what we feel like we can do yeah what was going through your guys' heads when you know when all that happened you guys had just moved there you know you have kids like what were you guys thinking you know like that's a pretty 
you know, I mean, especially since it was, you know, blown up the way it was, I'm sure that that's something scary when you have kids and you just moved into an area. And for people that don't know, planting a church is not easy. (laughs) It's very (laughs) stressful. Um, I've never done it personally, but I know a lot of people who have. And, you know, what was kind of going through your mind when all that was happening? Well, truthfully, the news broke locally before it broke nationally. Uh, So by the time, by the time, you know, CNN was in town, it was already, it was already kind of something that we had wrestled with. Um, But once we started getting, I mean, it kind of, this is bad. Like it should have just came out, but the boil advisories and stuff almost kind of prepped us for, (laughs) for something worse. Um, and there came a point where they started offering free tests and thankfully our, our water tested fine like yeah. from the get go mm. and it always has, uh, um, which is, you know, which is great. But the, the difficulty on the flip side of that is, you know, once, you know, once you start treating, you know, cause you put chemicals back into the water to treat it, to try to, you know, get the, um, the, the, uh, lead that's seeping or that's leaching out of the, the pipes yeah. uh, to um, the film that, that covers that or protects from that to cover back up. Um, that actually, that was actually more of an effect on us than the whole lead crisis. So it was the fixing it problem that created, you know, mm-hmm. rashes and, and stuff like that, that, that was, that was kind of a sucky thing to deal with, but thankfully wow. we're, we're kind of on, on the other side of that. But mm-hmm. it was one of those things where like, it was for us, I looked at it, you know, for us, it was a matter like I, I looked at it as an opportunity. Um, you know, we had we had the opportunity to partner with another uh, church in our tribe on Lansing to uh, deliver water and, and all sorts of stuff. So it was an opportunity to, to, to serve our community. Yeah. Um, and it was all, it was also an opportunity to kind of uh, to be. Um, you know, a voice that tried to rise and cut above the the negative and yeah. the negativity saying, you know, essentially that this doesn't def- define us. Um, you know, you, so it, it was one of those things where like, it was a big issue because it was made a big issue. Yeah. Um, it was definitely a serious issue, but uh, I think in terms of the daily life, uh, Flintstones are very resilient. This wasn't the first catastrophe that's that's befallen them. You know, in the two thousand two thousand eight recession, Flint's unemployment uh, by mid two thousand nine hit twenty eight percent. So there's you know it's one of those things where like um, there's that negativity mindset, but also there's kind of this like hard pressed. You know, come you know, come what may, I'm going to get through this kind of resolve, which I've I appreciate about this town. Yeah. Um, so I think in the midst of that, it was like, yeah, this sucks. We want to hold people justice, but we're going to live to see another day. So, yeah, uh, you know, a lot of missionaries and people who are like church planters, which I'll kind of lump into the kind of broad like missionary definition because, you know, they're, they're doing yeah. very similar things and have very similar mindsets. There is a, a sort of um, internal, I don't know if it's a personality trait of the people, you know, are interested in missions already or if it's something that's developed in that kind of culture. But there's almost a, uh, not a love, but kind of a weird, um, like, openness to hardship and difficulty. It's like, oh, like, we know we're doing something good because, you know, like, <laughs> wow, everything kind of blew up right when we got here. Uh, do, do you think that that's, you know, it's kind of that, I don't know, kind of speak to that because you're talking about this kind of air of negativity and pessimism, but when things happen like that, you know, how was your, your team that you came in with? 
Uh, it, it truthfully, it didn't impact it really apart from, you know, opportunities to serve the yeah. water crisis didn't impact our, our day-to-day ministry at okay. all. Um, and it wasn't something that like psychologically, I don't think shook our town. There was a lot of anger. Yeah. Um, and I think rightfully so, you know, yeah. the, the, um, you know, power was stripped away from local government, which is kind of the essence of democracy, right. um, is, is localized power and was shifted to then, you know, a group of people outside of the city, um, mm. predominantly white, who then made decisions on the city's behalf that negatively impacted the city in order to, to make, you know, to save a bug. Well, that always um, works out, I thought. It, it, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that there's, you know, there's a, that power dynamic of, you know, a, a people, when you live in a democracy, you expect to have some sort of say in, you know, how you're governed. Um, and, and that right was, was temporarily suspended, you know, yeah. for for the people of Flint, because they elected a mayor who then essentially was stripped of his power mm-hmm. for no fault of his own. Yeah. Um, but you, you mentioned the the whole missionary mindset is definitely true. But I didn't come here thinking as a missionary. I came here thinking as a pastor. Yeah. Um, and those you know are very similar, except for when you know hardship came in the church planting uh, experience. I thought I viewed it like an American. That you know, if something's tough, something's wrong. You know, pain yeah. is not pain is not good. You know, mm-hmm. and um, God actually through that in that first year of church planting really led me on uh, a journey to shift my thinking as a as an urban planter away from thinking like a pastor toward thinking like a missionary, and that was enormously freeing because I saw it as an opportunity, you know, I was called to a mission field, mm-hmm. um, you know, definitely not one of the, the most attractive mission fields in the United States. And as church plants, you know, church planting goes a very difficult one, but it was a mission field nonetheless. And yeah. it was, it was where I was called and that suffering that any hardship, which we endured a lot, um, we, we could understand was for the sake of the kingdom. And it, and really the church planting journey was a, a matter of, you know, transition in my view of suffering from suffering's wrong to I'm going to accept that it's a reality to God, I'm yours. What can you show me yeah. in the midst of this? And that transition was enormously, if, if, if nothing else um, came of, you know, planting a church, which a lot, a lot came from it, um, it would, it would be that yeah. um, for, for my own formative experience. Uh, that was that was huge in in my own personal walk with the Lord is understanding that by experiencing hardship, by experiencing suffering, we we participate in in a sense in the sufferings of Christ on the cross, and uh, being able to do that for for His sake, carrying out His mission mm-hmm. is an is an honor that you know we. I think that we take lightly sometimes. Mm. Uh, did, ha- you know, in regards to everything that happened in Flint the last couple of years and maybe just as, you know, a new pastor in Flint, has your thoughts about, um, about you know, how do I want to put it? You know, like ideas from like the social gospel as far as like when it comes to mission, when it comes to your calling and, you know, the kingdom of God – you really should be involved in um, not just the community and the relationships with people's lives, but the politics, because those are the things that the community cares about and everything that's going on in the city on the political level on, you know, all these different 
uh, social or societal levels. Have any of your ideas or beliefs developed from your time being there in that sense that you didn't really think about too much before? Or is that just something that, you know, I don't know, maybe just say, you know, whether you actually, you know, thought about that before or not, and if that changed since you started pastoring in Flint? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up and, you know, even my undergrad is from, you know, a, a Pentecostal, um, very evangelical institution, um, you know, where it was, it was the prime, you know, the gospel was saving souls, right. um, which I later found out really is kind of more platonic mm-hmm. understanding of, you know, of the gospel and of redemption than even a, a biblical one. Yeah. Um, because Jesus didn't just come to save souls. He came to save bodies as well. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what the doctrine of the resurrection, the final resurrection is, is mm-hmm. this idea of, you know, redeemed physical creation. Um, but wait, the rapture is supposed to happen and then all our souls get vacuumed up into heaven. I right. mean, I don't know what you're even talking about at this point. Yeah, well, we're talking about bi- uh, biblical Christianity. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll move on from that. Uh, but yeah, so like it, it was, this, you know, I came, you know, really kind of with a very a somewhat more developed framework than, than that. But mm-hmm. very much an understanding of like, you know, I'm here to you know, this, this is an over reduction. This is too simplistic, but essentially to get people to say the sinner's prayer and to see their lives personally transformed through that, that gospel manifesting in their own life. Um, from seeing the injustices, you know, that, that, that have taken place in Flint and doing life with people. Um, when you do, when you do life with someone, you know, like there was a lady in our congregation who, you know, even now, from my understanding, still has lead in her water, um, Mm -hmm. you know, still has to bathe with water bottles. You do you bathe with water bottles for three years. It gets tiring, especially in the States, like the water crisis is over. We're good. And she's like, I still got lead in my water. So, um, there are massive injustices that you have to look at and, and you see patterns in early church history with this too, where, they saw injustices and they met those needs, not as a way uh, it wasn't that wasn't the means by which we brought heaven to earth, but it was a way we foreshadow uh, the the coming of Christ. So mm. we understand that when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom over the earth, he will make every injustice just. He will right every wrong, you know, and it, redeem creation. When we work toward that justice, we are foreshadowing. We are essentially. Um, we are setting apart or uh, sanctifying uh, systems and in uh, causes and um, relationships as as a foreshadow of redeemed creation. Yeah. So Union Seminary put out a tweet a couple of days ago that essentially, like, by participating in social justice, we are enacting God's plan. I don't buy that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't buy that social justice as a way to see the kingdom of God realized as kind of a like an extreme post-millennial um, mm. perspective. Um, at the same time, I see it very much the way that the Eastern Orthodox see the subject of icons. Yeah. So the, the, you know, the iconoclast controversy, the, the argument for icons was that, you know, matter by, 
you know, an icon is, is essentially a, a foreshadow of God's redeemed creation. We're taking matter, setting, setting it apart for holy purposes mm. as, as a foreshadow of what God intends to do at the end. And scripture is chucked full of foreshadowing of, you know, redemp- or final redemption. And I think that if we claim to love the, or to serve the Prince of Peace, we have to carry out his good purposes. We have mm. to do his work to carry out his values, to put kingdom first, even at the expense of other things first, and to to ensure that we're working towards, you know, essentially the, the shalom of our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at the subject of evan- or the gospel, what is the gospel, through the lens of uh, N.T. Wright's input on it and Surprised yeah. by Hope. I mean, I talk about it a little bit in my book. Um, that it's like a three-legged stool, stool consisting of justice, beauty, and evangelism. Yeah. Um, we need all three of those components in order to have a holistic gospel. Because if we overly depend on one at the expense of the other two, we're not giving people a whole gospel. It's that mm-hmm. whole that concept of a cup of cold water. If it's given without the name of Jesus, just a cup of cold water. If it's given with the name of Jesus then it's it's redeemed it's it's set apart for holy purposes if it's just the name of jesus no cup of cold water that person's you know still going to be thirsty at the end you know? yeah. no matter how much we quote john 4 they will still be thirsty at the end <laughs> um you mentioned words like redeeming god wants to redeem creation or us and you know it's this idea of reconciling or redeeming um how do you you know what do you think or could you comment on the pop, like what you think the popular notion of God's, you know, mission is in regards to redeeming versus, you know, what you think, or another question is, you know, do you think God actually likes the world that we live in or is he calling us to escape it? (laughs) I think he loves the world. And I I think he loves, he loves it because that's what John three says. You know, the, the sign that we see, you know, all over baseball stadiums all the time, clearly states God so loves the world. And that's not God so loves humanity. Mm-hmm. That's God so loves he loves his creation. And yeah. the pinnacle of that creation are those that are that bear his image, um, which is humanity. But I think God desperately loves the world. Um and I think sometimes we view, you know, through an ev- from an evangelical standpoint and say uh, is we view creation as like you know, a love of creation is like new age. You know, that's what right. I grew up hearing. You know, well, uh, you know, Earth Day is a new age thing. No, like that's actually like a same. That's like a Franciscan thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a Jesus thing. You know, um, you know. So I think that if I think the whole idea of redeemed creation, um, yeah, there's the popular notion that we're we're supposed to, you know, kind of get out of here at the end of the age and everything's going to burn up in a giant fireball. Yeah. Um, which is actually what I grew up believing, you know, yeah. that like, yep, me too. I, I, as a teenager, I littered because who cares? It's all going to burn up anyway, you know, yeah. like, yep, me too. Straight up. <laughs> Pretty messed <laughs> and, up. And yeah. And that's not at all scriptural, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and that's not, you know, God's intention when we talk about heaven and earth passing away, it's in the same, it's in the same flow of thought as humanity passing away. Each of us pass away, but we die and then rise again the mm-hmm. expectation is after that passing you know like to quote willie george for every death in christ there's a glorious resurrection that applies both to humanity as god's pinnacle of creation as well as to the rest of creation itself mm-hmm. um 
and that's not new age. That's actually early Judaism or yeah. well, uh, post-exile Judaism and early Christianity. It goes but, back to what you were just saying about like Platonism and the idea of substance and the idea of, you know, like, you know, in the popular, uh, idea of Christianity that, you know, a lot of Christians have is, you know, and they don't realize is very influenced by Plato and that kind of, you know, Greek philosophy of the soul. And there's this common conception that, you know, like a lot of Christians just go around believing that, you know, God really is only concerned with their soul, um, you know, which is something that's hard to describe. And we all just kind of carry around these dirty, messed up, limited bodies you know, that it would just be better if we could just leave it. And we're all just kind of hoping, you know, God will come, the rapture will happen and, you know, our souls will get vacuumed out of our bodies, you know, but as you're talking about, like God actually likes creation. He actually likes the material world that he created. And, you know, um, earlier you mentioned briefly that it's not just a resurrection of our souls, but a resurrection of our bodies. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, we see, you know, that idea really kind of came about through, the, um, the, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, there was up until, I mean, we see traces of it in Ezekiel 37, his dry bones vision. But for the most part, there was a very, very limited, rudimentary, basic understanding of what the afterlife, you know, was. You know, yeah. we refer to it as Sheol in both a good and a bad sense. And, um, you know, there was an understanding of like the depths of Sheol, but it was kind of like, well, you know, it, it was kind of this expectation that, you know, when we die, we die. And at some point at the very end, God sorts it all out. And yeah. that was kind of the end of it. Through the exile, we see in, in emerging from the exile in first century um, Judaism, uh, we see this uh, emerge, this idea of uh, resurrection. But before Jesus came along, the concept was at the end of the age. It was at the day of Yahweh um, when, you know, Yahweh was believed to return to the earth to, you know, right every wrong, establish Israel's eternal rule uh, over the earth. The dead would be raised and, you know, would, um, you know, would enjoy, you know, eternity with him as their sovereign. Um, the idea that someone could be raised like Jesus was raised before that time was unthinkable. Right. Um, the most scandalous, uh, there were t- two of the most scandalous doctrines of early Christianity. One was this departure from uh, emperor worship, from bowing to the imperial cult, um, from attributing terms to Jesus as Caesar took for himself, like son of God, you know, king of kings, all that kind of stuff, prince of peace. Yeah. Um, the second was the doctrine of bodily resurrection, which shook both Jews and Greeks alike. To the Jews, this idea that some uh, that someone could rise from the dead in bodily form before the end of the age was it was difficult to even wrap their minds around for the greeks it was exactly what you were saying well why why would god rise from the dead when matter is evil the whole point is to get rid of your body and escape you know the the confines of the body actually i i saw uh, a quote from a very well-known christian author which i'm not going to name um, do it. But, no, but everybody, <laughs> everybody would know him, which said almost verbatim that idea that like, yeah. you know, death is a matter of the soul's escape from the body. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you have no idea how many levels of heresy that yeah. is, bro. You know, but like, um, <laughs> but, but it's so same, common. I mean, I grew up with that idea, you know, from and it's a, very, and it's a, very smart pastors yeah. and yeah, you know, oh, Christians yeah. and it's a, very well read, but 
for some reason that idea just got slipped into American culture and we just have like no history of it, like no understanding of the history of it. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's well-intentioned. Um, you know, it's not sinister by any means, but there's enormous implications in understanding the fact that at the end of the age, like it, it, there's a lot more assurance and there's a lot more hope in like the Christian sense, which is a certain expectation, not like yeah. a wishful thinking, but like that at the end of the age, like when I, or when I die, I don't have to worry about what it looks like on, on the other side, because I know that like, I, I will, you know, see you and my wife and my, we, we will see each other face to face in a, in a way that's more real now than ever before. It's mm-hmm. not like we're all these like automatons. Cause I grew up thinking like, we're all kind of like these like zombies herded around, you know, God's throne singing how great thou art. And I'm yeah. like, that we kind of lose our sense of like consciousness or like, and that's not at all the case, you know, and T mm-hmm. Wright talks about in surprise by hope, how we'll continue, you know, the process of, carrying out God's, you know, mandate to creation in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply, you know, we'll create, we'll continue to create things and yeah. we'll continue to, to do life. We will have barbecues with our friends and we, we will have, you know, enormous times of worship in the presence of God, you yeah. know, but we will enjoy, you know, a, a better, you know, more transcendent life than what we have now. Mm-hmm but very much in a way that's familiar to what we have now, just without the brokenness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're just, you know, kind of laughing about the platonic like soul and that idea that there's a soul in us and our bodies are just, you know, dirty meat bags. Um, You know, at the same time, it's like, it's completely understandable because it's very uh, intuitional. Like, you know, most people like feel that way where it's like your body has like all these functions that you don't control and you know what is the you is your consciousness so you like you feel like there's something inside your head that is you know the real you and the body is just kind of the robot that you're controlling um and it's and it you know not necessarily in the language of the soul but that idea has been um you know developed in other cultures other than the western one you know in buddhism there's like this strong idea that you are not your body um and different stuff like that and you know to give the idea it's due, you know, that idea of the soul is really what led to, you know, modern psychology, you know, like up until, you know, the late 1800s, like people were still talking about like the soul when they were trying to figure out psychology. So it's like psychology as we know it today came out of that understanding and then it was developed, you know, up until what we have now. But a robust Christian understanding of, you know, of resurrection or even of the nature of, of the person doesn't deny the existence of the soul, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's one, it, you know, just as Christ had both a, a human and divine nature, which were one, yeah. um, in, in the same person, it's, it's the same with us yeah. when it comes to these different components. We're not like, you know, remember Krang from Ninja Turtles, you know, it's not like that little, you know, brain dude, you know, yeah. in our, in our tum tum that, you know, <laughs> it was like controlling the big guy, you know, on the outside. Um, you know, they're not two components working in, in, you know, in a symbiotic relationship. They're, they're one. And, yeah. Yeah, know, Christ, it, Christ's divinity was embodied, you know, like right. his, his arm was just as much as him as, you know, any, as his faithfulness and Absolutely. obedience, which people describe as, um, you know, some people describe as, you know, the thing that was divine about him was his divine, you know, relationship or obedience or faithfulness to God in a unique way. Like yeah. that wasn't any less God than his arm or his, you know, like all the things that, you know, like we can't even, which is really interesting as far as like um, thinking about consciousness, 
um, you know, like AI uh, scientists and computer engineers um, could not figure out how to, you know, develop a robot that could like think on its own. And, you know, basically they could not figure out AI in a lot of ways. We still haven't until they gave it a body. Like they found out that you could not have an unbodied consciousness, even in a robot, even just constructing it. Um, they could not even get, you know, launched. They couldn't even get off the ground until they gave the thing an actual body. And then they could, you know, then everything started to click. And a lot of um, philosophers specifically and some like psychologists have been talking about enactment or embodiment about the idea that like our consciousness, we can't even be conscious without a body because everything that we think and everything that we do, our whole valuational or motivational um, systems or functions are all based and premised on the fact that we have a body, you know, like every, mm-hmm. like our entire life is based on the fact that we have a body. And so, um, from I a, can't remember where I was going with that, but <laughs> oh, from a Christian perspective, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know where, I, I mean, I've never, I haven't heard that before, so I'd have to think about it. Um, but I think the, the, the pushback I would give on that concept is, is Paul's, you know, discourse about being absent from being absent with the body or from the body is being present with the Lord. He's speaking about that intermediate state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, what we refer to as, as heaven, um, you know, and, uh, so I think that there, that idea of presence, I haven't, you know, done a ton of research on the implications of that, mm-hmm. um, but would seem to imply some sort of consciousness. And then you have, you also have the, the early Christian tradition, which is carried on in, high church, um, you know, movements of, you know, pr- uh, you know, praying to the saints, mm-hmm. um, of this idea. Um, I don't, I don't know what I would think about it. I, I would, but it would I support would, the idea of, you know, actually going back to like the scriptural understanding of the new heavens and new earth or new creation. The fact that like, we're not just going to be souls floating around in heaven. You know, it talks about like our an actual resurrection, you know, and for Christians, resurrection yeah. is important. So the idea that like, um, like God isn't interested in disembodied, you know, spirits, but actually, you know, interacting with, you know, bodies and with people, with actual things. And the idea yeah. of, I'm really interested in like creation being incarnation. I'm really interested in that idea. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. On, on creation. Being- yeah. The idea of, um, you know, like I certainly, it's something that I'm thinking about. It's certainly not something I'm super committed to, but like, um, like a lot of process, uh, theologians, uh, John Cobb and others talk about, um, like describe themselves as like panentheists, which is the idea that the creation as we see it is God, but God is also more than that. So it's not pantheism where like creation is God, but the world as we know it, you know, we talk about like, um, creation being like the first word of God. But the Logos is something that is incarnated through creation, through the natural order and eventually into, you know, Christ. Like his – the Logos is incarnated in Christ in a unique way, in a way that, you know, we call him the son of God. Um, And so like this idea of the natural world um, creation being a sort of incarnation of God, even though it's not just God, we can't reduce God to creation. But, you know, being a part of him, you know, the embodiment of God, like we can't really point anywhere in the universe and kind of point to God. He's also above and beyond, but part of who he is as far as how we know him um, in a large part is through his creation, you know, the creation being the first, you know, incarnation of his word. Yeah, I think that, you know, I would I look at it from the perspective of, you know, creation, non-human creation, um, bears it bears the 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 essence of god in the way that you know when i touch 
you know, a table or a book, it, it bears my DNA. Like my mm-hmm. DNA is left on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a, so I think that there's an essence of, you know, we see in scripture, you know, Psalm 19 is a classic, you know, of the heavens declaring God's glory. Jesus refers to the rocks crying out. You know, God's presence is constantly anthropomorphized, or not anthropomorphized, but um, described in scripture as carrying uh, cosmic um, uh, Wait. Uh, consequences. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah, you know, lightning and thunder. And so there's an interaction but I think it's, you know, I think, I think very much it's more so, you know, creation responds to the presence of God, to God's glory mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, my golden retriever, Carl Barth, uh, responds to me when I come through the door. It's, it's the, the, the in- intensification of my presence, the knowledge, the awareness of my presence causes that, you know, golden retriever interaction or, or reaction that everybody loves, you know? Yeah. Um, when it comes to humanity, I talk in my book um, about, you know, we, you know, when we use the term being you know, uh, created in, in God's image, that term image has the same Hebrew uh, root as, as the word for idol. Um, and that's rooted in, you know, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, pagan religions. When they would create an idol, it was thought to contain essentially the, the essence, the power of that deity and, you know, by interacting with that idol, you were appealing uh, to that deity directly. Um, yeah. And so in essence, that, that idol was uh, on the earth to carry out the purposes and plans of that deity. I think, it, you know, it very much as we bear the image of God, mm-hmm. um, we are an idol, quote unquote, not an object of worship. Yeah. But in the sense that we bear his likeness, we bear his image, we are his representation on the earth. Uh, to reflect his glory to creation and to and to be the the appeal that a creation that the you know that the unredeemed can make you know people look to the church and i think we see that truthfully as crazy as the statement's going to sound i think in the current political climate that we're in people have looked at the church it, currently kind of with disgust yeah um but kind of with like a like a disappointment of like, there's an expectation there that, Oh, you should be bearing a likeness that you're not bearing right yeah. now. Um, yeah, so I think that, you were talking about icons. Would you be comfortable saying that like that idea of image and its connection with idol, like humans are the icons of God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That'd be a very good way to put it. We're not, we're not God, you know, we're not, you know, but we're we bear, separate, we, but uniquely we, representative of, Correct. We bear, we bear his likeness and there's, there's a missional weight that that carries, you know, Mm -hmm. that even, not even just in our, in our likeness, but in, you know, in the breath that, that we breathe, that is, you know, Jews and early Christians associated that very much as deriving from God himself. And so, you know, our, the breath that we breathe has a missional component to it to, to reflect his glory to, Mm -hmm. to the rest of creation. Well, you know, we're talking about mission and, um, you know, continue on that line of thought with the idea of witness. Like, what does it mean, or what should it mean? What does it mean in the Bible, and what you you know, what you propose as far as how we witness, or in what way we are a witness? Is that something that we go out and 
proclaim with our words to the nations and if they don't agree with our propositions then okay like we leave and move on to the next spot or is there something more to our embodiment to our imaging god um that is involved in that witness like how would you you know how would you conceive of that or think of that yeah i I mean I, i do think that witnessing or evangelism uh sharing the gospel is more than just propositional statements you yeah. know and, ga- and gaining agreement to them um it's it's a uh, paul hebert who's a christian anthropologist um makes the statement or a, he, he refers to uh conversion quote unquote as encompassing a change in belief a change in behavior and then at, or i'm sorry a change in behavior at its surface level a change in belief and then most deeply a change in worldview Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that, you know, we, th- that worldview component is missing even in the lives of a, lot of a lot of people who profess Christianity because they've essentially conceded that, you know, okay, if I have the right beliefs and the right behavior, that's cool, you know, yeah. but there's a deeper level than that, an incarnational level where, you know, we, we see the world through, the, through the eyes of Jesus. Um, so as far as to answer your question, as far as witnessing, engaging, you know, this, you know, let's look at America in particular. Um, you know, we're in a very uh, shifting cultural time, you yeah. know, in, in many different ways. Um, you know, Christianity is kind of, you know, by no means a minority religion demographically, but in terms of a cultural voice. Authority. Um, the voice yeah, of authority. It's not there really you go. Christians anymore. It is an authoritative minority or is increasingly becoming yeah. so. Um, Brady Boyd, the pastor of New Life Church, talks about how that's essentially where Christianity does its best work is as a cultural yeah. minority on the fringes of society speaking into it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we steward that position a lot better than being at the center um, of both power and, and moral voice um, historically. But I think that you know what, where there's beauty in that um, is in the fact that we actually have scriptural – we have scriptural example – we can appeal to the example of the apostles. We can appeal to the example of the New Testament church um, in what it's like to minister as um, a, a cultural minority in a pluralistic society. Yeah. It's not It's not something to bemoan. Um, I mean, it's it's always better when there are you know more people who put their faith in Jesus than less. Um, but it's a tremendous uh, opportunity for us to re- recapture are the essence of what it means to be a missional people. Um, I think that, you know, when it comes to, uh, um, this, this whole idea of, you know, how do I witness in a pluralistic context? One of the biggest things that I think is, is enormous for us to understand is we are breaking out of or coming the, the age of enlightenment style witnessing or enlightenment style evangelism is coming ideas. to a close. Yeah, it's ideas you know, view. You have to agree with it or disagree with it. It's very right. it's kind of you know uh, evangelism by way of Lee Strobel or Ravi Zacharias, and both those guys are fantastic, and and they have their own you know sphere in which they do what they do. Um, but that like evangelism via apologetics mm-hmm. um, is you know or you know in in other cases evangelism via legislation that moral majority kind of uh, yeah. realm. Instead, it's this idea when you look at the first century church, they and even Jews when they encountered pagan religions, they didn't try to prove our God's the only one that exists. Let me prove to you the existence of God. You know, let me, you know, let me reduce, you know, this argument down to, you know, this little, you know, 
you know, paperweight looking, you know, uh, trinket that I can prove to the gospel and all this kind of stuff. We didn't, they didn't try to prove anything by reason. Um, they asserted that even Paul in Acts 17 was like, okay, y'all got these other gods over here. Let me tell you about this, this unknown God. And it it was an appeal to our God is supreme. Mm -hmm. Our God is the God of heaven. Our God is a creator God. Um, and so it, it, rather than spending a bunch of knucklehead time, you know, arguing that other gods didn't exist, they essentially appealed to the authority and the power yeah. of, of, you know, God is revealed through Christ yeah. and then allowed the Holy Spirit to, to fill that space in the context of relationship. That's important. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be really tough for Americans who have enjoyed the comfort yeah. of being able to evangelize, quote unquote, via legislation or by way of, you know, giving to a cause so they don't have to like get their hands dirty. Um, but doing life with people is dirty. It's people showing up at your door at midnight, you know, strung out on drugs and it's, it's, you know, being uncomfortable getting to know your neighbor. If you're, you know, a socially awkward person, it's, you know, it's a matter of being intentional with the relationships around you. Um, and that's, you know, that's going to be a transition for a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of arguments have been made lately that, um, you know, as far as like um, the Western world, Christianity has never been closer to the original church as it has been now, you know, and back in the first century, the original uh, Christians, they were living in a pluralistic age where there were multiple gods and um, to believe in one God, uh, like I believe the Christians were were called atheists by the Greeks because like Mm -hmm. to believe in one God, like you're an atheist, <laughs> like, you know, and I don't oh, know. And exactly a God not a that. part of their pantheon of gods. Exactly. And so, um, in a large way, um, you can kind of see the early Christians, um, you know, like you said, not apologetically arguing against the belief or the existence of other gods. And even if you want to go even back to the old Testament, um, you know, polytheism or multiple, the idea of multiple gods was kind of just taken for granted, I think throughout the entire, um, old Testament where like the Jews, like, I don't, you know, I think it started to change towards the end, but the Jews believed that there were other gods. They were just commanded to believe and follow the one God. Um, and I mean, maybe that could be contested a little bit. Um, but I know that that was, you know, like God commanded his people to follow him, to call him almighty or God and, um, not necessarily the idea that there literally is no other God. So that kind of brings up some interesting qu- questions about, you know, again, this idea of like this enlightenment, uh, influenced propositional belief version of faith, um, versus, you know, uh, maybe a more nuanced or even a biblical understanding of faith that didn't necessarily involve, um, monotheism, even though that was definitely the case with the early Christians, um, I believe so. I don't know if I have my scholarship all memorized, but, um, you know, it, I mean, how, I, I guess I want to know what you think about those kind of dynamics with today. We, we live in a super pluralistic world where there's multiple religions. I mean, even within Christianity, you could argue that there's multiple religions within Christianity. There's lots of different varieties and all these different things. And people, um, like you said, like, Christianity doesn't have the kind of legislative, um, cultural authority that it once did. So it's not as easy as, uh, you know, you know, I was just listening to this, um, historian talk about, you know, the history of America and Christianity, the idea of, um, like Christians 
used to be like the moral majority. Um, you know, like people who weren't Christians, as far as their cultural understanding in America, like everyone's cultural understanding in America, like Christians were seen as moral people. And so Mm -hmm. non-Christians would act immorally and then they would say, I got to get my, you know, crap together and they would join the church and then they would eventually be led to Jesus and the whole thing. But now like today, which is, you know, I think a very recent thing, like Christians are, especially by like more progressive leaning people, more, you know, the like more liberal side, left, side of things like the Christianity and the church are seen as immoral, you know, like all throughout our culture, just hang out on Twitter and hang out in like the news feed for a while. Like Christians are seen as immoral. They are, they have immoral ideas about the body. They have immoral ideas about race. They have immoral, you know, we're seen as these, um, immoral, racist, bigoted, you know, uneducated like people, um, which has been a huge shift in America in the last like couple hundred years where it's like the church was generally seen even by non-christians as a moral people you know like you go to church to become more moral you learn christianity to become more moral and now like it's kind of flipped where the broad cultural understanding is that like religion is immoral and you know bigoted and all the rest like how do we if we're going to call ourselves christians and even evangelicals like how do we kind of, uh, how do we process that? How do we like start to, you know, talking about mission and witness and how we do witness, how does that change from, you know, like you said, having the authority on our side, like the cultural and legislative authority on our side to that being up for grabs and not really in our pocket anymore. Like how do we do witness when we have to just we have to first convince people that we're even, you know, moral or, you know, good people, um, to begin with, like, what do you think about all that? Well, there's, there's two, there's two realities that I think are, are at play simultaneously. The first is in that shift to become a more pluralistic society, the United or American culture is, um, essentially redefining, it, it will have a moral center no matter what, mm-hmm. um, it's currently wrestling through the dynamics of that um, to, in my opinion, uh, I think there's there's kind of an unconscious desire to see a similar pattern as what you see in Scandinavia and Finland, uh, where really the civic center is the moral center. Mm-hmm. What is what is governed or what what is governed is what is moral. And, and mm-hmm. those those two are equal with one another. Um I think we saw a lot of that shift take place in 2015 after the um, the same-sex marriage Supreme Court ruling. Yeah. Uh, we saw essentially a flip even in the way it was talked about in the media, um, for, uh, both conservative and liberal, mainstream media, whatever. Um, it, it went from you know being a contested issue to once the Supreme Court said it, it was an un, it was essentially an uncontested. Uh, moral issue that was now accepted and anything that was, you know, pre, you know, in May, 2015, you know, was, well, it's a matter of debate come June, 2015. Now it's settled, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, wherever you stand on that issue, that's, that's not germane to the discussion, but um, it, it, what it's demonstrative of is the fact that America essentially looks to the, the Supreme court in, in many respects, to the way, you know, early, um, uh, or medieval Christians look to Rome. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's that dynamic and that's just a natural part of, that, that's a natural part of 
you know, if there's a vacuum, and I think the the church has, you know, the church's departure as that moral center has created a vacuum. Something has to fill that. Yeah. Um, I don't think it'll be just that, but I think it'll be primarily that and Hollywood. Yeah. Um, now, on the flip side of that, um, and I'm going to get kind of Pentecostal on you for a second, <laughs> but um, I can't help myself. But uh, I think that, you know, there the fact that it, there's, you know, a perception that the church is immoral is because it is. Um, not, And that's painting with a broad brush. There are wonderful, devout Christians that live a life consistent with, you know, what the church has historically taught as yeah as biblical and, and righteous or whatever. Um, but there is, you know, there, there's become very, it's, it's come to the surface, even, you know, with what broke this week about everything happening within the Pennsylvania, you know, diocese, uh, all the Pennsylvania diocese of over, you know, clergy sex abuse. Mm-hmm. That's a tremendous immorality yeah. exposed. And I, and I, I see it very reminiscent of, you know, in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel gives a, a judgment against Judah that essentially she's following in the way of her her sister Sodom, and Sodom's sins. You know, we kind of immediately go to the sexual stuff, and that and that was a component, but a, a significant component of Sodom's sins, which ended up in its destruction, was its mistreatment of the poor, the immigrant, yeah. the widow, of children. It, it was it, it was very much what we see today. Um, and Ezekiel footnotes essentially that their sin is so great that even the Philistines are disgusted. Now the Philistines were renowned, like a renowned moral people, like renowned throughout the Mediterranean. And it it was so bad that it's like, even the Philistines think that y'all are a bunch of jacked up folk, you know? And I think that there's, there's a parallel in that. Um, with what we see today, there's a lot of sin in the camp, and um, I think that, that that has to be dealt with. I think that what, where you know the if we look at the scriptures, minimizing it, pretending like it's not there, shoving it under the rug, covering it up, all of that is the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Every time there is sin, exposing it in the light is always the right decision. Yeah. Rep- repentance is always the right decision. And if we don't repent, scripture is constantly clear that God will bring it to light and will judge us for that yeah. uh, for us. And I, th- I think we're at a, a tipping point or a crossroads in the church where I genuinely believe God wants to prepare the church for this next season, that as we move into this kind of new phase of doing life in a pluralistic context, I actually believe that God is posturing the church for great revival. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, you look at any, any revival in scripture and church history and, and painful times of repentance had to precede that mm-hmm. because God's not going to send his people out with a fresh infusion of his power without first ridding the idolatry, without first ridding the sin that is, is currently keeping the church at bay. And there's yeah. a lot, and that ranges everything from nationalism to ra- racial bigotry to gender inequality and power abuse. And um, e- even things like individualism is a huge, you know, consumerism, uh, uh, greed, uh, things of that sort, um, dishonor is a massive idol that's just rooted in our culture, in, in our American culture. Um, but we we operate in a different way in the kingdom of God. We operate in a culture of honor. Um, and so the, those things have to be corrected. 
in order for the church, you know, fire, you know, and, and scripture often refers to fire in connection with judgment. And fire has two, uh, two purposes in connection with judgment. It purifies and it consumes. And I think it's going to consume, you know, the things metaphorically speaking that it need to be consumed so that what, that which can be purified can move forward. Yeah. Um, and that for me is, is an exciting thing. It's painful. Um, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see everything that's, that's happened. And even some of the things that are, you know, the, I'll just say it like the support of Roy Moore and and stuff like that, you know, Mm -hmm. by evangelicals is just, it it breaks my heart, but I'm excited that for every death in Christ, there's a glorious resurrection, you know, that God has, you know, the church carries on and these times of refining, these times of necessary repentance are good, are necessary to recapture the the truth of our gospel witness mm. yeah we're uh we're starting to creep on the end of our time which is unfortunate because we just opened up a lot of a yeah, whole can of worms <laughs> that we'd love to <laughs> dig deeper into maybe we can do a part three soon sure um to like end us out you know you're just talking about this stuff has to come to light and repentance is always the you know the right option the true option keeping things hidden keeping things you know like under wraps is never <laughs> never the right choice Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, pastors coming out in the last, you know, or being outed, uh, being exposed in the last like couple of years of like having, you know, also a variety of different issues and having to step down. Um, it's not, you know, at this point, it's not something new. It's not even that surprising. Um, but do you think that it's just a human thing for people, Christians in this case to, um, defend them, to say, you got to believe him instead of the victims you have to, you know, like to, do you think it's just a human thing to, to protect them or get defensive about it? Or do you think that there's something within, you know, we can just speak from the American side of like the American, like broad, you know, church, you know what I mean? Is, do you think that it's some that there is something that is unique to, uh, American Christianity or Western Christianity that lends itself to that? Uh, or do you think that, it's a human thing to just defend your people, you know, your tribe, like what's keeping us from being willing to, to identify or believe the victims of all sorts of different things. It doesn't even have to be Christian. You know, there's just so many things coming out into light, but what do you think? I think there's a, I think it's a human thing. Yeah. Um, I think there's a natural tendency, you know, at, at the presentation of something like, you know, stories in the me too movement um, disrupt the status quo. And the status quo is usually always more comfortable than the disruption of it. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, especially when, you know, the, the alleged perpetrators are beloved people, you know, people that we've, you know, I think about like to bring it out of great events for the sake of, you know, whatever. Um, when we look at like what happened with Jimmy Swagger in the eighties, you know, like my folks were, they, they adored him. Yeah. You know, my, my grandparents adored Jimmy Swagger. He was a beloved person. Um, and so there was, th- th- when your when your heroes prove to be human, yeah. um, that, that becomes, you know, sometimes difficult to wrestle with. I think that, um, for, for Christians in particular, for me, the issue once again comes down to repentance. I, I have, tons of respect for someone that is willing to not because they're beating the news, you know, that's about to break, but because there's conviction in their heart, um, that like something has, you know, like they have to bring something to light. Mm-hmm. Um, I have tons of respect for that. 
um, for, you know, those that have to be kind of, you know, drug out of their position, kicking and screaming and refuse to, you know, admit something despite empirical proof to the contrary. It's a different story. Um, that doesn't mean we don't love them and we don't want to see God's, you know, best for them, but it does, you know, it changes the way that we look at, you know, things like leadership and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to, you know, I, I personally, I'll be honest, and this is an unpopular opinion, but whatever, um, I wrestle with, I think that there's, you know, we should always, um, we should always give equal voice to both, uh, you know, defendant and prosecute, you know, or defendant and prosecutor in, in any situation. I think that's what our country is built on, um, in terms of its, its judicial system. Um, and I think that there, there can be sometimes a uh, a tendency, uh, to get on to, um, or to, to get on witch hunts where yeah. we essentially, someone's guilty until proven innocent. <laughs> That's not the same as not believing victims. And I, yeah. I want to be very clear on that. I think that if it, the psychology and, uh, and statistics have proven that it takes tremendous courage and often at tremendous cost to, um, for a victim to step forward. Mm-hmm. And so just the simple fact that they're going public with something to their own peril often, um, I think deserves the attention that it, that it deserves. I think of, uh, Rachel, uh, uh, what's her last name? Uh, Dellen. Or are you talking about someone uh, involved in one of these things? The, the one who kind of led the charge on the, um, the exposure of Larry Nassar. Um, I I can never remember names, but, uh, you know, that, you know, she, you know, that cost her a great deal, you know, and, um, you know, and it's been very, you know, I'm sure it's been very painful. I don't know them personally, but, mm. um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, we should be very quick to, you know, approach things rationally and not, you know, go looking for witches, but as, as they appear, you know, <laughs> to deal with, yeah. you know, their witchcraft appropriately, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I think that, you know, society has, has a tendency to, to run full bore into things as the people of God. I think we need to look at things, um, and to deal with them with integrity, yeah. uh, to consider uh, con- consider the plight of the one who does not have power. Yeah. Often, um, they, because power has a way of protecting institutions and insulating the status quo, and that's where sin can often breed. I think yeah. uh, de- deconstructing some of that that power insulation, we often find uh, find things that need to be repented of. Yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, it's definitely a topic that we could definitely talk more about. You know, what does it look like? You know, what does God's kingdom or the kingdom of God actually look like? And you know, going back to what we were talking about, redeeming, reconciling. Um, you know, like His kingdom is very much a kingdom of relationships and righting wrongs and reconciling and redeeming relationships. And I think a lot of people are just afraid of the you know of the me too uh, movement specifically just because i think a lot of you know guys specifically can think of you know different instances where they act less than honorably or you know less than than christ-like and you know they're afraid you know well could that be misconstrued as whatever and there's a lot of people that are afraid but you know something I that e- i have an easy solution for that yeah what's that don't try to have sex with a woman until you're married. <laughs> that's, that's pretty simple. <laughs> it's crazy. I know. Like it's it, you know, going against the cultural grain there, but like, I mean, seriously, like, you kind of avoid that, like act like a gentleman and 
that's that, you know, like, I mean, so, you know, some people are always, you know, you hold the door open for, you know, somebody and they're all, you know, there's going to be bound to be one person that takes offense at it, you know, yeah. but at the same time, if you, you know, treat women with, you know, respect and wait to have sex with just one woman, yeah. it's, it's amazing how many, you know, pitfalls that avoids, you yeah. know, I think about this with all this, you know, stuff surrounding the current administration, like, you know, there's all of, you know, payoffs and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, if the, if he was just a man of one wife, there wouldn't be any of this. You know, I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. You know, like yeah, just throwing that, like I don't have those problems. I never had to pay a porn star. Like I'm just saying, but we should we should well, cut that part out. <laughs> no, no, we're keeping it in. I take from Todd Corpy. Right. Uh, well, I, we I talked about yeah. a lot of things. We talked about mission. Uh, in the context of uh, pluralism and, uh, you know, in the context, you know, of today where the church has lost the, um, you know, even moral or legislative or, you know, all these different things that the church had um, to kind of be an authority, you know, we have kind of lost that in the last, you know, I don't know however long, but the, we opened up a bunch of can of worms about pluralism and mission. What does it look like? There was um, something I wanted to talk about, which we can get to next time we talk about the this thing called uh, inner movements. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that, but this book just came out recently about inner movements, which is basically um, Muslims and Hindus and basically all these non-Christian religions. These people are having these like, you know, these dreams of Jesus or these different, you know, mystical or religious experiences and basically wanting to follow Jesus and become Christians, but not wanting to... Um, lose their you know their hinduism yeah. or their buddhism or their um their i don't know how to say it, muslimism um but they are followers of jesus so what the heck do we do with that how do we think of that are they real christians or are they intermediate like how do we think about that i think that you know unless you have a very quick thought on that but i would like to dig deeper into that because i think that it that is a central question for people who are thinking about missions, who are Christians and thinking about witness and how do we think about these different things in this plural world? Um, a, you know, a good argument could be made that that's what, you know, Christianity initially was, was um, this kind of inner movement of people having a, an experience with Jesus who were Jews, you know, like they were still Jews. A lot of them were still Jews. And now there's this Jesus guy. And um, a lot of people are thinking about these inner movements in relation to that kind of analogy where it's like, yes, I am culturally Jewish or I am culturally uh, uh, Hindu, but I am a follower of Jesus. Um so I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't have even <laughs> brought that up because it's something that I think that we could definitely have an you know hours long conversation about. Um, but do you have like a quick thought on that before we close? Yeah, I mean, I think that it it, it is a very nuanced and extended yes. conversation. <laughs> that that could be a podcast all in and of its own. But yep. um, I think a lot of it stems from our perception of what is a real Christian. Mm. Um, is you know is a real Christian someone who wears a suit and tie and sits in you know a wooden pew um, and you know sings you know, a song and listens to a liturgy, um, is a, you know, is a real Christian, someone who, you know, is, you know, wears jeans and a t-shirt and, you know, attends a mega church or, yeah. you know, whatever is a real, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. um, we tend to, uh, the gospel is, is like, the gospel is a seed and that seed has to have soil in which it's planted and the same seed in different soil will produce different fruit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> 
And so, you know, that same seed planted in Palestine in the first century is going to look different than planted in Flint, Michigan in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, just because the soil and the conditions are different, mm-hmm. but it doesn't change what the seed is and yeah. the fruit and, you know, the, the fruit, it's fruit being capacity. So I think that, you know, there's there, that, that falls in a, a conversation, that inner movement concept, it falls in a conversation of essentially where on the contextualization scale, um, you can essentially go and still be, you know, considered a Christian. I will say yeah. I'm, I'm completely kind of firmly against, and I try my best to police my own self on this, um, of adjectives, which precede Christian. Like mm-hmm. I'm, a, you know, I'm, a, I'm culturally, a, you know, a Buddhist, but I also follow Jesus. Pragmatic um, Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Specifically, I'm an American Christian. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No, you're a Christian who lives in America. Right. And that, you know, the descriptor is, you know, is, I think it is important because it reveals um, in situations like that, it could potentially reveal, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, the, the primacy of those, and some of that's linguistic. So, yeah. you know, that, you know, that can't be universally applied, but yeah. um, I think the concept can, you know, of yeah. you know, where that primacy lies. But we can unpack that more at a, at a later time, I suppose. Yeah. And just so you know, Christian pragmatist was already taken on the domains, so <laughs> oh, I, I, I wasn't throwing shade. I promise. You were, I, I know, but it's okay because that's how we grow. We shade. throw shade and then we talk about it. But this was part two of our conversation. Next time we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to get to the bottom of what is a real Christian. We're going to figure it out. I have a feeling that we're going to figure it out, and uh, we'll write a book Tall together. Glass of milk, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for talking to me. Uh, I had a great time, and I'm looking forward to um, part three of possibly an ongoing series of these conversations because uh, you're somebody that cares about, you know, not just cares about missions. All Christians are supposed to care about missions, but you're you care about thinking deeply about it and. How do we think about it and progressively think about it as cultures change, as life changes, the world changes? And I really appreciate that. Not everybody does. And I think it's important for not even just my Christian audience, but my non-Christian audience to hear how we're talking about these things and working these things out because it shows that we don't just have firm, fixed ideas about these things. Um, we're all fallible and figuring it out as we go. You know, We don't have a privileged place um, epistemolo- uh, epistemologically about these things where you got to work it yeah. out together. And that's kind of part of being a church and being, um, you know, the kingdom is working these things out in relationship in these conversations on podcasts. Podcasts are the kingdom of God. And that's what I want to end this. <laughs> sounds good. So thanks, man. I th- uh, thanks for talking to me. I can't wait to talk again. Yeah, this sounds good. Look forward to it.
Sorry, I just got distracted by my cat, who is currently inside my bass drum. I'm a drummer, and I just looked over, and she was inside the bass drum. So that was kind of funny and distracting. Anyways, 